0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: This is the Gator Nation football podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. This place is an
2: insane asylum
0: in the swamp. Oh, my. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs.
2: Welcome to the Gator Nation football podcast. I'm your host, James D. Virgilio, alongside Alan Williams, and we are feeling good.
1: Yeah. What
2: that's up? A, that's a happy, yeah, we're feeling good. We trashed Florida State. We did. It was therapy- It was Thanksgiving, it was turkey, it was gravy, it was pie, and it was beating the absolute tar out of Florida State. I'm just going to say that so many times on this show. But before I say that, Alan, I'm going to talk about my other favorite word, which is a dono. A dono. There was a major event that went down in the past 24 hours. A major, major event. Before I tell you about that, let me get to some of our donos here. If you like the show, you can like us on Facebook. You can also hop on the Patreon and become a patron, where you can give us a dono. We had some new patrons this past week. Matt Bailey, a large dono. What thanks, up, Matt? Thanks so much, Matt. Appreciate that. Medium donos from Mark Ammerman and Scott Evely. Appreciate that, guys. Thank you very much. And in the in the top supporter world, we had some movement. We had some movement. In fact, one James Newton came in and dethroned Alexander Levitt. Oh, he came for the king. He came for the king. Except I told the king, as a professional courtesy... And this will be extended to anyone who is number one on the supporter list. That if someone takes your throne, you will get a simple notification that says someone has taken your spot. I send this message to Alexander and he writes back, no, next message, I refuse. (laughs) And next thing I know, there is a new dono in the system, which has surpassed James Newton's dono. So Alexander Leventhal, still. Still king. The king the undefeated champ- undisputed champion of James the Newton, though,
1: world. coming hard, though.
2: But, James, I want to say, you're going to get a lot of love on this show because you came hard. You brought a number out there that, that handily had beaten Alexander's number, and he was not to be beaten. So we appreciate that. The two heavyweights are going at it. Uh, as always, thank you guys so much for the donuts. We appreciate this. We know it's a fun thing, but Alan and I seriously appreciate it. Uh, James and Alexander, excellent stuff the past 24 hours. It has fueled my Monday. And with that, let's turn
1: our attention
2: to the weekend that was.
1: Guys, I was on here last week. I was pretty hyped, James. I was uh, My emotions were all over the place. I wanted to win so bad. It had been five years, and we did it. Just a little stat here. Rolled up 500 yards of total offense for the third straight game and scored the third most points in Tallahassee ever. Now, I grew up watching Steve Spurrier mostly lose in Tallahassee. It's still a great thing anytime you win there. It was awesome. We had some great quotes from one Willie Taggart last week. I I thoroughly enjoyed hearing him just describe the nature of FSU football. James, let me just ask you this. Is FSU who we thought they were?
2: They are everything we thought they were and maybe even Even more more than we thought. And, And there's so many things that come to mind. But first and foremost, last week we said the defense should have a great matchup, and they did. We said the offense should be able to pass for more than 200 yards, which for us is, is a no small thing, and we did. And that there would be a lot of penalties and turnovers by Florida State, Woo! and boy, were there ever. But most importantly, this Florida State performance was the most Willie Taggart-like performance you could imagine, and that is that is said in the most negative way possible if you're even a casual college football fan. What we witnessed on Saturday, Alan, was, was – Something that I just have not witnessed very often. So yes, in my opinion, Florida State is exactly who we thought they were. Do you feel the same?
1: Yeah, I mean, we were expecting kind of a mess out there, and they were. Now, they have a certain position group that severely limits what they can do. You know, that's compounded by the fact they don't seemingly coach their players or practice or anything like that. Uh, But... And I'm talking about the offensive line prohibiting but they have so much talent. For them to be this bad and this penalized, it's crazy. I mean, we Florida teams have been penalized in the past. We're always up there, but the types of penalties they were getting in the spots they're getting them must drive FSU fans crazy. I don't know if I could watch this team week after week. I mean, we've gone through some stuff the last decade. But even this is a whole other thing. I, I don't if I'm an FSU fan, I don't know if I can even support the program because of just what's showing up on the field. There's it, a, a mixture of apathy and incompetence that you never expect to see from Florida State.
2: The level of disorganization on it's display good for it. is not only amateur, it's it's. Beyond that, I mean, it's this- sub-
1: your flag football team is infinitely more organized than this team.
2: Oh, I would argue that my flag football team is infinitely more organized than many teams, but, <laughs> but my flag football team at Florida State right now are not even in the same hemisphere when it comes to organization. But here's something that's really revealing Greg McElroy, again, not my favorite broadcaster, and then Tom Luganbiller are doing this game. And both of them throughout the game had to make comments about how disorganized this was, how surprising this was. And they were being as professional as they could be, Alan, until towards the end of the game when a couple of my favorite moments happened. When Tom Luganbill is just jumping in, he's stepping on, in in the words of a broadcaster, stepping on what Greg's saying or what the play-by-play guy's saying to announce that he can't believe it, but I'm sorry, guys, Florida State's running yet again an 11th guy on the field because they only have 10. And you just can watch a lot of college football. I have three flat screens at my house. I watch almost every game. You do not see the things that are happening at Florida State happen. Not only at major college programs, but any Division One college program. It's an embarrassment to college football. It's an embarrassment to Florida State. And all the Florida State fans that kind of thought they were just above it because they've been so good for so many years are now recognizing the difference a single coach can make. And in my opinion, Alan... Willie Taggart's not only the worst coach that I've ever seen in the modern era. He's significantly worse than guys that we've had who are bad in their own right. McIlwain is is a bad football coach, but he looks like a genius compared to the things that Willie Taggart is doing. We had the podcast last week when we read the quotes. We talked about the philosophy. We said that it was quote-unquote simple, that it was really kind of silly. And and it's hard when we look at this film, Alan – to come up with any other narrative than Florida State, their entire coaching staff is woefully unprepared to coach these athletes. And on top of it all, Alan, as Tom Luganville kept saying, this Florida State team is loaded with talent. These guys, almost to a man, were more talented than the guys on our side of the field. Almost to a man, minus the offensive, offensive line. line yeah. And our offensive line's not anything great talent-wise. Right. And to just play like that, is, it's utterly hard to believe. You could imagine they'd be better if they coached themselves. That was something that I have never seen before, and I can't tell you how happy I am. One of my buddies texted me and said that he texted his brother, who's a Florida State grad, that what he was thankful for on Thanksgiving was not only Willie Taggart being at Florida State, but the contract that guarantees almost all of his six-year money via a buyout. Florida State's in a horrible place right now. Horrible place.
1: So we're going to talk about Chauncey Gardner-Johnson a lot on this show. But one of those times that they didn't have enough men on the field, I don't know if you saw this, they got the 11th guy on because he told them they only had 10 men on the field towards the end of the game. You can see him motioning at the FSU bench and pointing, and then they run a guy into the slot. I've never seen that. That was amazing. Chauncey said, like, hey, you guys need an extra guy right here. You're missing one. Come, come run this play. What's funny about this game is we won 41-14. I don't think we played great. We played well in certain spots, but it's not like we played a flawless game. We could have beat them worse. I actually think if we run this back 10 times, we actually probably beat them worse. Maybe the score is somewhat similar, but there's a couple of big plays by them that we probably don't give up. Uh, I think we sacked them more, turned them over more. Um, I don't know if we played better offensively. We played pretty good, but defensively, I thought we could have played better. Um, and so that just shows you the the gap is really wide, and I think it's only going to get wider. They're not going to get more talented. Maybe they can stay roughly as talented if, if Willie recruits like he is supposed to be able to. But what's he going to do with it? I, I don't see the hope in the future. I mean, you're if you're a coaching staff, you should... The team should get better with time. This team did not get better. They they maybe incrementally improved um, in certain areas. But, man, uh, rough future for them. Let's go ahead and turn to looking at the actual game. What do we notice? What do we pick up? How did we accomplish what we accomplished? Let's start with our offense. Let's start with the game plan. James, as you watch us out there, uh, what were we doing, what you thought we would do, and where were we successful at it?
2: So the film revealed exactly how it felt. This game's interesting. I think if you're like a lot of Gator fans, you feel great. You feel like we crushed Florida State. But if you go back and you look at the film, you recognize that not only was this game 13-7 at the start of the second half, but we had a, I'm going to call it an odd game plan per se, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it makes intuitive sense. What was our game plan? To be very conservative on offense. Right. Why? Because we felt like Florida State's offense was a absolute dumpster fire. That's a true narrative. But given the way the first quarter went, I would have expected us, Allen, to be a little more bold. It was clear that we were just far more prepared for this football game than they were, yet we remained extremely conservative. Very. And the game plan involved a lot of short passes and a lot of Franks running, and later on it evolved a little bit more. But for a large portion of this game, Allen, I felt we were far too conservative. But there's not a doubt that that was on purpose, and that Dan Mullen's game plan was to keep this game uber safe, knowing that it's been five years since we've gotten a win over Florida State. He was going to take a win, and I'm sure he also imagined that what happened would happen, is that we would just slowly sort of vice grip them out of this game, and then once we did, the floodgates would open.
1: And that we expected them to quit at some point if we piled on enough plays, and I don't know if they totally quit. I actually thought they might have quit more than they did. But defensively they started letting up some big plays. They
2: did. And, you know, there was a big crowd on hand for this game. I'm big relative to what I figured was going to happen. A lot of Florida State fans showed up. I think the BC win gave them momentum, which we talked about was the best case scenario for us to sort of ruin their their mythical uh, I feel like mythical because they they you know backdoored themselves into it last year, but all the little streaks and everything else that went on and we, we pulverized it. So there was one main reason that we were successful on offense uh, aside from other stuff we'll talk about one of the wrinkles we ran we'll talk about some little things we did but primarily there was one big difference in this game that led us to be so successful i don't know what was it
1: big plays i mean i talked last week about our wide receivers being able to win on the outside and they did van jefferson ate them up i mean on one of his i guess his touchdown where he basically broke that guy's ankles and ran around route combo that he wasn't actually supposed to run. people talked about that, but he improvised because he basically got that guy to fall down. Trevon Grimes looked fantastic. Looked like a freaking man out there. Everybody did well on the outside because they were going to be put in positions to win or lose those. And they won them. So 536 yards of offense, a lot of big plays. um, And that was the difference. We weren't going to be able to grind it out, running the ball. We ran the ball. Okay, but not super effectively. Not for big chunks, other than the P Pirine run, which we just gashed them and they were out of position. They made a dumb play there. But it was a big play, and we needed those, and we got them.
2: Yeah, the P Pirine run was huge. It was 3 nothing at the time. Yes, big We moment. were not running the ball well at all. Uh, but, you know, I think everything Allen went according to exactly what we said was going to happen. We said Florida State's run defense was good, and they were. They were as advertised, minus that P Ryan play. It was very hard for us to gain yards running the ball. We've said we've struggled in the past when that happened. That's largely why that score was what it was at halftime, is we were struggling to run the ball, especially in the red zone. We just could not do it. That led us to have a low-scoring game. But ultimately, we said that this is the game where Dan Mullen and his coaching staff are so superior to Willie Taggart and his staff that we should be able to play call our way into points. And in fact, a large majority of our points were a direct result of two things. One, Us knowing exactly how Florida State was going to play defense, which we talked about last week, they are not going to do what Missouri did, and they were as advertised. They were as simple and as basic and as predictable as you could be, which is why for the first time all year, you saw us throw the ball much more successfully over the middle of the field. And that's very indicative of where Franks is as a quarterback, Alan, is the middle of the field is scary when teams are changing up what's going on there. It's not so scary when you know exactly what each player is going to do. And we knew that, and so we were able to beat them with our superior wide receiver talent, uh, which we certainly had, and you saw that on display today. And those are easy, simple throws. One wrinkle that came in, and every single week Dan introduces one, was Franks running a lot of solo play action. Six or seven times in this game, he took the snaps, took a one- or two-step kind of Tim Tebow like, I'm going to run the ball pulled it back, ultimately hit that touchdown to Van Jefferson, and also hit several other throws off of it. And then, of course, as always, Dan did a very good job in this game getting a lot of Franks' first looks to be open. And, as we're going to talk about in a second, Franks did maybe his best job of the season of not hitting his first look, not necessarily making an on-time progression, but let's call it when all the looks are done, whether he makes one and then he stops, or he does what he should do and make three or four. He then found the next level. So now the play's broken up, and he did a good job on a couple of those. But ultimately, Dan Mullen, once again, I think, put the offense in position to succeed, even though I think personally, the game plan allowed Florida State to be in the game. That was precisely what Dan Mullen, I think, wanted, uh, because you don't attack a team's strength when Florida State's past defense is as bad as it is. You attack their weakness. We were really unwilling to do that until we got a comfortable lead. So we did struggle. On offense, like we mentioned, we struggled being too conservative. Uh Primarily, though, Alan, your thoughts on third down? We've talked a lot about this team on third down. We've tended to struggle a lot on third down, even against bad defenses. This game was no exception. We were five for fifteen, and we were woeful in the red zone. Was this just due to conservative play calling? Is this due to Franks is not being trusted? Like, what what do you think the reason is for this sort of this this poor third down? Well, it was it like was
1: that? being conservative because you know they do have some pass rushers. We talked about Brian Burns um, Robinson. I don't think they wanted to put us in a position where Frank's going to have to drop back and get to his third read behind that offensive line and his ability to go through the reads quickly. Cause that could lead to a sack to take you out of field goal range, a fumble an interception. Those were the worst case scenarios for us. And so I think we got really conservative of what we attempted to do on this plays, And that resulted in us being short of the sticks or just not having enough men, uh, in routes that were going to get us to a first down yardage. I don't know. I, I can't like hate on that because what they were doing ultimately opened up the floodgates. We were more aggressive on first down, second down, but when we got to third down, we weren't really willing to turn it over to Felipe. And that, I mean, I think that's just what he's put on film all year.
2: Yeah. Frank's is who he is. Like we said, but Alan, I'm going to ask you this question. I got this a lot. You got this a lot. Was this Frank's, best game and as a follow-up was there an improvement as to why it was his best game or is this maybe more a result of florida state's badness if you will
1: so he was 16 of 26 254 yards three tds he had some carries you know a few a a few decent rushes a lot where he got stuffed i'm gonna say this was his best game considering the level of competition the stakes in the game he had some really great throws where you see his arm strength come into effect. There's a throw over the middle to Tony, a couple of the Jefferson throws. He threw some on-target D-balls that really set us up well, that made FSU respect us going down the field. And so this is the kind of game from Franks that you would you would want. He didn't really put us in danger. Um, we didn't ask him to do certain things, but on the things we did ask him to do, he really came through down the field. Because that's what—if you're going to have a guy with a big arm, you're going to need him to show up down the field. Otherwise, there's not as much use for him. And so there wasn't a big bar to jump over, James. Uh, but yes, I think it was his best game this year and as a Gator. Uh, you know, statistically, he he might have some better games, but from what we want him, he played a fairly flawless game for what we put in the game plan for him and what he's capable of doing.
2: This was his best game, but but this is, again, more of an indication for me of Dan Mullen's ability to coach a quarterback than this is about Franks progressing. So I'm going to say this yet again. If you think that Franks has gotten better and that all of a sudden these past three games are an indicator that he has really turned a corner and that he can do things he hasn't done before, I would say the film argues otherwise. In reality, he played South Carolina, top 10 bottom defense, or top 10 meaning bottom 10 top, defense. Right? Top bottom. Top worst, I guess, top of the worst defenses. Also top of the worst defenses, to go on with this theme, was, was Idaho. And then also top of the worst defenses was Florida State. They're middling, quote unquote, but not really. Anytime they played a competent offense, they got hammered on the defensive end passing-wise. Yeah, That's why they could, could play pass with the ball. BC, is right. BC couldn't pass. And while we can't pass, we said we can play call. And we can play call. And we did that in this game. So I think what Franks did in this game was, was prove all the polish Mullen put on him. Don't turn the ball over. Uh, throw the ball away, which he did several times. And then when you make a first read throw, he was good today. Missouri was an example of Franks', I think, volatility. This was his ceiling. When he's on, he can make those first read throws well. And against Missouri, we had a lot of first read throws that were wide open, and he missed almost all of them. That's kind of the range for Franks. I think what you still don't see with Franks, like we talk about, is that read progression, is the ability to make a play outside the pocket uh, consistently, although he did have one, which we talked about, you mentioned, uh, that pass uh, to Grimes where he rolls out to the right, tells Grimes come back in the end zone. There's a beautiful pass there. Have not seen enough of that go on this year. But all in all, definitely his best game. However, still nothing on film to indicate he's turned any kind of like level one to level two corner. But really a beautiful game to indicate how Dan Mullen learned to manage Franks throughout the season, how to create a game plan to keep him safe and sound 13 to seven, slowly open it up some more. Uh, But make no mistake about it here. If we had a better quarterback than Franks in this game, Dan Mullen's game plan would not have been what it was. A lot would have been up 30 to seven. It would have been a blowout at halftime. And a lot of that is due to Frank. So if you find yourself thinking, Oh, Hey, Franks is turning a corner. Franks is great. The film would tell you otherwise. The film would tell you the coach does not trust the quarterback. He's managing him correctly.
1: And I will say, Felipe, we needed him to play this type of game. We couldn't have him be bad and win comfortably. We might have still ground out a win. His play and his success and what we asked him to do made this win possible. But I don't think it puts him into the stratosphere where now he's unseatable heading into the offseason. Even though that we've racked up a lot of yardage. that's a little bit of fool's goal considering who we played defensively um now if he had done this against elite level defenses now you're like okay mullen plus franks equals offensive success and he's probably more of a fixture there let's move over to defense a really good effort from this unit overall against the obviously very bad offensive unit where did you see we're successful
2: Well, we mentioned that we could play our normal defense and have a lot of success against them, and we more or less did in almost all phases of uh, the defensive end of the football. One wrinkle that was thrown in, and this is a a serious wrinkle, something we have not seen all year long, was Bernie, a guy that you had coincidentally mentioned uh, several times this season as Chauncey Gardner's backup in the nickel, actually played at a, we're not going to call it a linebacker spot. We played in the dime, which is something that we have Rarely done. I I may have seen it on film for five to ten snaps and this entire quickly, season. Quickly, what is dime? And so, in the dime, we take out David Reese or Voshan, but in this game, we take out David Reese. Take out a linebacker and put on another pass defender, or traditionally a corner.
1: Yes, no seems would we'll put on in a corner. We Except don't really have, we don't those. have a
2: corner. So we're putting in Bernie, who plays nickel, but kind of looks like a linebacker. He's a bigger guy. He's a
1: tweener. He's much more. He's much closer to a linebacker than he is a corner.
2: And so if you didn't notice it and you thought we had another linebacker out there, that's that's why. But he's number 30. But multiple times in this game, probably 15 or 20 snaps at this game on defense. out we played dime. So when Florida State went four wide and had a running back, we played dime. We took Reese out. Now, Reese is by far our best run stopper. And a lot of people out there are probably wondering, well, why the heck is Voshan Joseph in there? Because Voshan is, you know... He's making all these bad plays. He missed Francois on a wide-open tackle. Uh, Voshan's a better athlete than Reese is, and Florida State, thankfully to their lethal simplicity, is not going to confuse Voshan. All he does is run at the running back and guard him, and that's what he actually does very well, Uh, whereas Bernie would cover a slot or a tight end or whatever the case was. So that was a wrinkle that we put in for this game. We felt very confident Florida State couldn't run on us. We Yeah, that's the
1: thing. You you had to be confident they weren't going to be able to run at us in that dime. Now, if you're playing dime and someone runs at you, you can get gashed bad because you're playing six defensive backs. Now, Bernie's an interesting guy to keep in there because he's a little bigger than, you know, a traditional corner could help in run support if needed. But we were saying we can take out our best run de- run playing linebacker and you're still not going to be able to run on us and they couldn't for the most part.
2: And essentially, and let me just make one point on this cuz this is good. So if you find yourself thinking, "Okay, what's a dime? What's a nickel?" Uh well, we'll start with the nickel, which is our base defense, and we have two linebackers. So you have two linebackers, and we're just gonna go for simplicity, because we typically do this all year, four down linemen. That's gonna give you what you're gonna call six run defenders, just at a basic level. Six run defenders. That's typically going to put you against their five offensive linemen and a running back. Simple as it can be. They could also put a tight end in there, but whatever. It's let's say it's six on six or six on seven. That's pretty typical, Alan. If you go to the dime, if you go to the dime, then you're gonna have four in this case of the Florida State game, four down linemen, and one linebacker. So now you have five versus their six. They have five linemen, and they have a running back. Five versus their six. Florida State did not even attempt to run the ball in this lineup. Now, if you were in the NFL and you went to dime, and it was third down and five or six or seven, which is not a super long conversion in the league, they would punish you for that significantly because they'll spread the field on you, and they're going to ask your middle linebacker to cover sideline to sideline against the team's best athlete. In this case, Cam Akers for Florida State. Florida State doesn't even attempt to utilize that matchup. So we were so confident on film, Alan, that when they went to those looks, they were just going to pass the ball, we could run dime, and That helped us because it did not have to have David Reese guarding an actual receiver, of which Florida State has multiple talented and fast receivers. So a nice adjustment there by Grantham, sneaky little play. I don't think we do that against a team that is is more multiple than Florida State is. But another example of the lethal simplicity Allowing a, a what well, we talked about, a coaching staff that's very creative to exploit a tactical weakness. And we exploited it in this game. And it's nice to see that because we've spent years where we have not seen this stuff. And here we are this year seeing it show up again.
1: Well, you've talked a lot about two tight end sets. Now, a team that has a lot of talent at tight end, they can play multiple tight ends. And this is interesting because you can run or pass out of this set without, you know, tipping your hat about what you're doing. Now, teams have used. Two tight end sets against us a lot, which blunts our pass rush, confuses our linebackers. James, do you see a lot of two tight end sets from FSU? Uh,
2: no, <laughs> actually, I, zero times that I see that there were two tight end sets. In fact, rarely was there even one tight end on the field. Now, this is an important thing. We mentioned last week on this very podcast, we said Florida State's defense could cause us problems because they stopped, they stopped running the ball. I mean, they stop the run. Well, if they do this, right? We said if, they, if they're confusing on the back end, if they mix up their looks, they didn't. We said Florida State's offense could give us problems if if they run what's been really killing us all year long, the Georgia method of a two-tight end system. They didn't. Almost exclusively, not a single time.
1: It's too simple. you got to say now, simple, James.
2: It's hard to understand that a team like Idaho comes into the swamp and employs a two-tight end system, which they do not run, Allen, normally, to attempt to exploit this wrinkle. But a team like Florida State doesn't even attempt it. It's like, actually... Let's go right into the teeth of what you do best. So how are we successful? We were successful because they played right into our strengths. They have one of the worst offensive lines in college football, and they were content to block just five guys with a running back, which we routinely obliterated all game long. We stopped the run. We had a very effective pass rush, even though we probably didn't have as many sacks as we could have. Right. But essentially... They played right into our hands. We wind up getting three turnovers, and this is an amazing stat, Alan. They're one for 14 on third down. One for 14. I'm pretty confident that you and I could go out there, spend one practice with Florida State, and do better than one for 14 on third down against their defense. I'm confident of that. That's just an incredible train wreck. But most importantly, most shockingly to me in this day and age, to see them not even employ a two tight end set is the height of football ignorance when you recognize this is what your opponent struggles with and you don't even utilize We put it, it
1: on film over and over and over again. You don't even utilize it. Who is, who is coaching this team?
2: Hard to reconcile that. Hard to reconcile that. We did struggle, though, Alan. Where did we struggle on defense?
1: Well, I talked about you know us not getting the kind of pass rush. I thought that was going to be the key to the game. It somewhat was. We did well enough. But you saw Zuniga and Polite basically running past Francois. Like getting too high in the pocket. That means they, they go so high up and we're not getting enough push up the middle, like we don't do with our defensive tackles. Um and he can step up into the pocket and throw. Uh and he, you know, he does a good job of climbing the pocket and throwing. He's willing to take a hit to his detriment sometimes, I think. And then he also scrambled well. He's a he's a better athlete than I, I think about because he can be so effective throwing the ball. Now, very like on their best drive of the game, you saw it was, it was third or fourth down and long, and yeah, Voshan comes up to and he just whiffs completely. Francois is a tough guy to get, but that was he was a spy on that play, which means his job is to mirror Francois and tackle him if he runs. It was long down is and shouldn't have even gotten close. They pick it up they go on and score. Um, and I don't think our safeties played very well in this game. I mean that that's not surprising. Um, but when they did exploit us, they did mess with our safeties.
2: So we had the usual suspects: safety yeah. play, defensive tackles, which you've been correctly harping on, and and that, and that was a point you mentioned where our defensive ends were so much better than Florida State's tackles that we were just blowing by them with with ease. But Francois is good enough that he climbs the pocket to actually turn a, a positive into a detriment. But that doesn't happen if your defensive tackles can even get like a yard up the field. But the majority of the time, Allen, it's embarrassing. We can't even push Florida State's guards or center back like a yard. So you've got this crazy picture where you've got these two guys in white jerseys, seven yards in the backfield, and you have two defensive tackles that are basically standing where the ball is snapped. It's one of the weirder things that you could see. We have a huge problem at defensive tackle, and Grantham knows it. I'm not sure how we solve this problem in the immediate future this will be something we're going to talk yeah, about we're gonna
1: we're gonna be in a different alignment going next, into year.
2: next season but this is a real problem and it was one that we did not think we were going to have so if you want to get an early surprise candidate for something that's not so good defensive tackle has become a serious position of need for us at least at this moment we'll continue to evaluate it but that that showed up outside of that i thought the defense was predictably solid against an offense that is just really bad despite the amount of talent they have on there Special teams, not a lot to mention here, Alan, but an excellent game from our punter.
1: Yeah, Tommy time, Tommy Townsend, the little brother. You know, he he had some good punts. I think he's excellent at excellent at um, you know placing the ball inside the twenty. We talk about that, Um, but he really showed off his leg today. He played well. He flipped the field for us. Kept FSU pinned where they. I mean, their starting field position was terrible, and they would you know they would move the ball thirty yards and still be you know, punting on their own 10. So, you know, I I think this game maybe gets a little trickier if their field position isn't so bad. So I don't think Tommy's got the kind of press that, you know, we've been heaping on our punter recently in the last like five years because our punter was like maybe the best player on our team. So shouts out to Tommy for having a nice season and an excellent game overall couple of coaching decisions here in the coaching corner. Not too many to look at, but the
2: beginning of the game was interesting. In the first quarter, fourth down and goal from the two-yard line, and we go for it. Like or don't like and why?
1: Okay, I'm going to go against type here, and I'm going to say I didn't like it. Um, And I normally do. And it didn't hurt us overly. But at that point in the game, I think any kind of points you put on the board puts pressure on FSU. And, you know, as the half went on, I would have love to have another three points because then it would have been 16 to seven. And you're you're not in danger of going down on one fluke play. So I, I didn't hate the decision. I thought the fact that we weren't running the ball well. And now if we've been just been gashing them running the ball, with, especially with like QB power or something like that. Yeah, go for it. Um, but. I didn't love the play call. I didn't love the call. I would have kicked the field goal there. And that's me who's normally hyper aggressive in that area. So
2: I think you're raising a really interesting point. So we talk a lot in this podcast about meta strategy. This is what you should do all the time based upon the math. The meta strategy when you're fourth down and goal from the two is to always, and I mean, always go for it. If we're going to look at long-term math, because if you don't get it, The odds are great. You get the ball back and then you score. And we've talked about this before. Your expected value is four point something points. It's actually higher than three. But what you're saying, Alan, is interesting because outside of meta strategy, you have something called exploitative strategy. And exploitative strategy is where you might go against the meta strategy. And in this case, the exploitative strategy here may be correct to be conservative. Why? Because of what you just said. At this point in time in the game, we had rarely trusted Frank to even throw the ball. We had just tried two or three out of four run plays in our pass plays and gotten absolutely nowhere, lost a yard or so. So to think you're going to score now in an obvious passing down on fourth down in this end zone with a quarterback who doesn't have any confidence in the game yet is seemingly unlikely. So maybe this inverts, maybe this changes it. But I'm actually going to punt on whether I like or dislike this one because I'm going to talk about the second one, which I okay. want to get the reaction here first, but... I tend to want to go for that because of the meta strategy math. I think Florida State's an overmatched opponent, but I want to make that point that I think you're you're arguing for the exploitative strategy there, which I think is probably a good one given how that drive went. Maybe you take a break from the best strategy and take a tactical approach, but this is where it gets confusing. So we get down there again late in the first quarter, and it's fourth and two again. This time we're on the seven-yard line, and we kick it. So pause button here for a second. First time, fourth and two, go for it. So you're saying, okay, I'm a meta strategy guy. Second time, fourth and two, kick it. Okay, now I'm an exploitative strategy guy. I don't feel good about it. This, in my opinion, Alan, when looked conjoined together, is is a classic error in strategic thinking. Because what you just said, I think is correct. If you want it to be exploitative, the first one was the one to do it on. I don't feel good about this. I'm not running the ball well, quarterback's not into it. Let's kick this. The second one, by now, you might as well double down on your meta strategy and just go for it again. No real reason, I think, to flop this one out now. It's backwards strategically thinking to add the three points there. Of course, you have three points, but I think you either kick the field goal first, kick the field goal again on the second one, or kick the field goal first. Now that you got some points on the board, say how you feel, maybe go for it. But going for it and kicking the field goal is it's a very w- weird way to play a game according to game three. It's, it, it's weird. the least of all optimal results to do it that way. And we did it.
1: Yeah, it feels bad. Now, I would have, had we kicked the first one, I would have been more, if you're just going for, as you said, the exploitative strategy or basically tactical. In this moment, what's the best decision? Now you can get yourself in a wonky scenario like we did because then you're kind of flip-flopping. You're not thinking big picture. You're not going for, you're letting maybe the emotions of the moment rule you too much. But then I felt like we had to kick the second one. In that scenario, if you're going to be exploitative and you don't get it on first the first time, and then to come away with no points again and get stopped, I think that would have been too big of a momentum swing. You had to blunt the momentum right there. And you know, a lot of stat heads would don't believe in momentum. I very much do, especially in college football. So I agreed with the decision, even though I don't like how we got there. And I don't like the methodology, but I think I would have kicked the second time in that scenario too. even I would have kicked the first time. So that's weird. But had I made that previous quote unquote wrong decision, I don't think it was necessary compounding it with another wrong decision to kick it the second time.
2: And that brings up maybe the most interesting discussion of all of this is to is to look at decision making in a, in a sequence of decisions as opposed to an isolated decision, because this is not a one turn game. So in game theory, if you and I, Alan, are playing a one-turn game, there is no second turn. Whatever we do in our one-turn game does not affect any future turn. You just make the best decision for that turn every single time. Uh, So in this example, the first decision, as you're illustrating, absolutely affects your thinking, which is what you're saying. Now you're affected, and momentum is a real thing. You cannot ignore that. That's the human element. It's present in everything from investing to football. That's a real thing. And also... I believe most strongly in what I call the the two-score rule in football. I've talked about this a lot. Your goal in football is always to get up two scores or to keep yourself ahead two scores. So I think what you're subconsciously illustrating, Alan, is if you kick the field goal first, that's one score. Not one full score, but one score. And then if you have to kick the field goal a second time, you're only still up one score. So there's far less incentive to kick it the second time. Whereas if you get the field goal, then it's fourth and two the second time. Now you're more willing to go for it because it's worth the risk of the getting reward is higher. two scores. This also makes sense on an expected value case because now we say we know that the field goal is only worth three. So we gave up some expected value the first time. But now we know going for it's worth more than four, which puts us up more than one score on average if we kept going for it. So I think... What's really fun about this kind of stuff and we love talking about it on the podcast is the meta strategy is actually rarely the best strategy to use over the course of a football game, one game, because you do have to respond to what's happening on the field tactically. And this situation, I think both you and I Alan, found interesting because it was backwards, but it did indicate the concepts we're talking. Yeah,
1: about. Yeah. So what would you have done like the first time and then the second time?
2: I think the first time my thought would have been different play calling to set myself up going for it. And that's why I think I would I'd probably almost always go for it. And I'm I'm an advocate of that fourth and two from the goal line. But looking at how we called the plays and where the momentum was and where Frank's was in the game, I think I kicked a field goal. You're on the road. You take the points. Three does not feel like much, but it's something in a rivalry game when your team has not beaten them in five years and just kind of put a little bit on them then I think the second time would have gone for it. But again, I think the play calling, Allen, maybe most importantly, dictated the feeling going into these fourth downs is when you have two plays that don't go anywhere when you're running the ball, you don't feel really great about fourth down. And the defense does. And and that does matter, especially with a team like ours. So I think there's a lot of factors here that are fun to unwrap. You can't know exactly what to do, but we wanted to give you a kind of like an item of what these decisions look like if you're going to put them on a, on a stat spectrum. And again, to clarify maybe the hierarchy here, Allen, like you mentioned, if it's all meta strategy, you go for it both times and you say, you know, statisticians be damned. Like it doesn't really matter what you say. I don't really care. Like I'm going to go for it and I don't care if, uh, if situations
1: or emotions or circumstances the emotions matter.
2: don't matter. Sorry, not statisticians, but you know, humans be damned if you will. Like I don't really care what the feelings are. I'm always going to go for this, but I think that's a, that's a bad approach to things in life because humans are playing the game and uh, anyway, Interesting thoughts here on any final thoughts on the coaching decision corner before we get into what happened after the game as a coaching decision.
1: No, I, I really liked for the most part what Dan does on offense and I can't kill him for those play calls or those decisions in hindsight, I would have done it differently, but it's funny. It's rare for us. Again, it's rare for us to pick apart what he does. And even when he does do something, that's like, well, I could see that I usually would maybe do that in this situation. I might've done something differently. But they're very defensible choices. Okay, very very interesting moment. If you're watching post game, they're doing the traditional post game interview with the head coach, and he gets Dan gets very distracted. And it's like, hey, no, stop, no, 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 no. And you see him run over to midfield. Chauncey Gardner Johnson segment number two. He's trying to plant the gator flag a la Baker Mayfield, and uh, the FSU players I think are rightly. Um, not having it or are a little upset by it now, whatever they lost, they can, you know, screw off. But Dan goes in and inserts himself and says, I, we don't want to do that. All right. Two part question here. How do you feel about Dan? No, let me ask you this first. How do you feel about the flag planting in general? Where you like, yeah, Chauncey, get it. Or no, you shouldn't, shouldn't do that. And how do you feel about Dan stopping it?
2: I tend to consider myself more of an elitist by trade. So I dislike anything that puts my opponent on enough of a pedestal that I feel like I have to attempt to humiliate them. Okay, I, I prefer to win the game as though I expected to win the game and walk off the field like it was business as usual. I want to celebrate. I'm an Italian guy. I like passion. But I don't need that. I don't need flag planting there. I don't think it's that kind of moment. I think you, you expect to beat them. You act like you were going to beat them. And then in the post-game press conference, you can talk about how you knew you were going to beat them. I understand the emotion, though Chauncey's been here all these years. There's an insane amount of trash talked all year around, every single day of the year about this game, and they're sick of hearing it. And they want to let you know that we've taken over your stadium. So I don't, I don't like the flag planting. I agree with Dan Mullen. I think what Dan did was was fantastic. I also think the way the players responded to Dan shows the level of organization on this football team. Is in that moment when it's emotionally charged, there's stuff going on. A fight does not break out. Our players. Leave the spot almost immediately upon getting their attention and and the situation is done. And so I think that was the right way to do it. I'm sure a lot of you wish, oh no, plant that sucker, let Florida State know where they stand. But I think if you keep beating a team 41 to 14 year after year after year, it shows them far more where they stand than planting a flag in the middle of the field after one win. But either way, I liked the way Dan handled it. I think it really illustrates his overall awareness of the program and the optics of how we want to win as Florida. And he even says into the microphone, kind of it's caught on the microphone, hey, we don't we don't want to win like that. We don't want to handle it like that. That's not how we handle this. That's not how we're gonna win. And I respect that. I think that's a, a very good way to build a program.
1: Agreed. I I was totally fine with him stopping it. I don't hate that Chauncey did that. I that's not my preference either. I don't think it was some atrocious thing that he should be incredibly chastised for if you're going to be brash and back it up that's fine i i'm more in favor of celebrating than taunting and that's a little more on the line of taunting um you know i think of to going and standing on the cowboy star and like gloating this is kind of a long time ago and then someone comes up and just trucks him i was like if you're going to do that stuff like if chauncey was playing the flag and he got freaking trucked out of nowhere be like well Chauncey you you did it you kind of got what you deserved I wouldn't have killed either guy for that but yeah that's not really how I would want to run my program I'd want to celebrate I'd want to you know basically go go crazy you know celebrate all you want but maybe not I would veer away from the taunting part Are right, any other bright spots that you want to mention there are a lot of
2: bright spots in this game. We could talk about Polite. We could talk about Chauncey having yet another great game. We could talk about Pirine, but I'm going to talk about the coaching. We said coming into this game, Alan, that the biggest difference by far was our coaching staff versus their coaching staff. And this highlights a really important component we talk a lot about on this show. You have to have both coaching and talent in order to win a national championship. Talent, however, is less important than coaching when it comes to consistency in winning.
1: Especially in college football.
2: Especially in college football. But that does not mean that talent is not the most important when it comes to winning a national championship. Because a great coach cannot win a national championship without that level of talent. So you have to have it. So you can't kid yourself and think, oh, Dan Mullen and staff are so great that we could just recruit at 20th every year and win. You can't. But what you really see is all of these games where we are better than our opponents because we're more organized, we can win them. And that's what we said, right? We said when Dan Mullen got hired, Alan, what Dan Mullen and Urban Meyer do so well is they beat the teams they should beat. They punish the teams that are not organized and not disciplined. And that's more or less what this season has been all about. And Florida State was sort of the crowning moment of that. You've got a coach who's not systematic, not organized struggles to have a grasp on what he's doing Versus a coach who's a master of the details and knows how to get his players ready to play each and every week. And you saw that play out on the field. So a good lesson in general about the importance of coaching in college football. It does make a huge difference. And it was nice for us, Alan, to be on the right side of that for once.
1: Loved it. Okay. Chauncey Gardner, Johnson segment number three, a few quotes from him post game. Here's Chauncey on FSU. We knew they were the most undisciplined team in America. So we were just going to take advantage of every little opportunity we had. I love they watched the film, and the main takeaway was this is the most undisciplined team in America.
2: It's, it's just a fact. I and mean, we said in the podcast last week, it's actually hard to believe. And I think the fact that he's saying that openly indicates the same thing. Keep in mind, these guys played this team last year. And this this team last year was a, was a dumpster fire by Jimbo Fisher standards because they lost their quarterback. They had things go wrong for them but nothing of this nature, nothing like this. And I'm sure Chauncey's never seen anything like this at the college football level. And so for him to say it about your chief rival is just glorious. Well, this is
1: what you would, here's how you can evaluate your coaches. Let's swap the coaches. What's the score of this game?
2: I don't even want to think. A 1,000 to nothing? I can't, oh, it's, it's probably 75, 80 to, to three, maybe. I mean, it's it's an absolute beatdown. It's, it's a bigger result than what we got. That's There's no doubt about that.
1: There you go. All right, one more Chauncey quote here, just along these same lines. I'm talking about number 15, uh, the wide receiver, Terry, uh, was supposed to be the best receiver they had. He had, what, three catches? The other receivers were drawing, but not a lot of results. <laughs> Here's the tagline here. You can't have a million-dollar check if you're not going to cash it. Basically, calling them out, they have a ton of talent, and they can't get anything out of it. So good luck to you, Florida State. Have at it.
2: And this is a great quote by one Greg McElroy, who I've maligned a lot this season. He's a nice guy, but he, he's right about this. And this is straight out of the Nick Saban School of Excellence. He says during the show that if there's one thing in life and in football that is the worst, it's underachieving. And that is so true. And Florida State right now is criminally underachieving. Unfortunately for them, it's hard to blame the players. These kids are kids, not adults. They really cannot take matters into their own hands. So for those guys on Florida State, they're stuck in a bad situation. And as McElroy said, they criminally underachieve this season.
1: Okay. Maybe one of the more underachieving teams in recent memory, you know, no major injuries along like to a star quarterback or other things. Do you buy any of the narrative that, you know, Willie Taggart's going to recruit some guys quote-unquote, his guys, more buy-in, that they're going to be a little bit better next year?
2: They might be a little bit better because they will have more buy-in. This team did quit. Maybe they beat some of the worst teams. But what you see on film is unprecedented. I just haven't seen it before. And he's not going to recruit as well as Jimbo did. And, oh, by the way, Jimbo, all he did was finish second in the SEC West with a team that had a lot of flaws. Jimbo's a phenomenal football coach. He's also a top five recruiter. You're insane if you think the tag are going to be anywhere near that guy's level. Right now, Alan. they're ranked 11th or 12th in recruiting. Really hard to imagine after this season and this display that they're going to finish in the top five. So you're already going to see a backslide. You're going to see less talent. You're going to see more frustration. They're probably going to have an off season of transition. You've got to imagine a lot of those guys are going to want to get out of that program. So very interesting times for Florida State. I do not see this getting better. I think as Florida fans, we probably hope that it gets a little better next year, maybe 7-5, and maybe even 8-4, and with us trouncing them again to where he sticks around for a while. That's kind of my main concern now is how (laughs) long can we keep this guy there because I don't see him figuring it out anytime soon. And now, Alan, I wholeheartedly subscribe to the narrative an Oregon guy put out there which was that the only reason Willard Taggart even got this far was because of his old high school coach, which we mentioned last week about how he really came in and built the offense and coached that team. And I think that guy's narrative is exactly right, that he does not know what he's doing. And that guy is no longer on the staff. And short of him hiring someone to turn the program around for him, like maybe Cliff Kingsbury, He's available. Oh, please no. That would be maybe the best thing that he could do. I, I forbid it. But outside of something like that, it's impossible to see this get better.
1: All right. Well, let's go ahead and look at the national games, James. Why don't you walk us through that? Some really crazy, crazy stuff.
2: So UCF wins 38-10 over USF. But, of course, the main story here is that Mackenzie Milton, I yes, watched super this happen sad. live. Just horrific knee injury. I still have not heard exactly what happened to him, but looking at that, looks like that may not only be a season-ending injury, but that could be a career-altering injury. Yeah, we pile
1: on, I especially pile on UCF, but shout out to that kid um, for, you know, I guess having the success he's had with his limited, like, natural skill set. And I hope this doesn't preclude a shot at, at the NFL if he did have one in the first place.
2: Yeah, nobody wants to see that sad moment for sure. Oklahoma, West Virginia. And what was just an insane football game. Loved it.
1: Loved every second of it.
2: At every level, West Virginia has two offensive touchdowns for Oklahoma and two fumbles by Will Greer. Uh, Will Greer throws for 500 and some odd yards. Just an insane, insane game. West Virginia, two weeks in a row, just losing a heartbreaker after heartbreaker in order to further their season. You had to think this was West Virginia's chance to win the Big 12. They let it slip by them and ultimately – Oklahoma converts a fourth down and then a second and 10 to deny Will Greer the ball. Bummer ending for Will Greer. I think great season for him. Sad for me. No more Will Greer games minus the bowl game. And I can't imagine he'd even really play much in the bowl game, given his NFL future. But either way, I think my takeaway from this game, Alan, was it's just sad to watch these two teams not even play defense at all. It's kind of an embarrassment for the sport, honestly. Like You look at the score and think, oh, that's fun. It's not fun. That's too much offense. It's, it's awful on the defensive end.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it is great offense and poor defense. So a lot of bad tackling, a lot of bad angles, some weird schematic adjustments. But I still had a great time watching these incredible quarterbacks, some great wide receivers. There was some excellent offense at the same time. Washington on the road.
2: Gets a huge win over Washington State, 28-15. If you didn't watch this game or you didn't know what Beautiful. happened, the main narrative of this was a blizzard.
1: It, it was, this was awesome on Friday night watching. I wish I would watched more of the Apple Cup, but the Oklahoma-West Virginia was so compelling, but it looked incredible on TV. I love snow games.
2: So it looked great, but unfortunately for Mike Leach and the boys, that's the worst kind of weather for his system. Yeah, Best kind of weather for Washington. I absolutely think in normal conditions that Washington State beats this Washington Agreed. team. Agreed. This game was closed for a long time despite the conditions. It did prompt a really interesting quote from a Washington player who afterwards basically said, we know exactly what they're going to do. Their coach runs the same place in the same system every single year. Mike Leach, of course, runs the Air Raid, a system I like. But this does illustrate the flaw in how Mike Leach runs the system. And we got a question about this on Twitter, Alan. But essentially, Mike Leach does not like to employ any kind of pro style or what you would consider to be significant rushing attack. On this podcast, I've always wanted to marry the air raid with a pro style running attack, which, oh, by the way, check out the Kansas City Chiefs or the LA Rams if you want to see an example of what that looks like. That's what they're running. So is the air raid to blame here? Is the Washington player correct? partially partially because their running game is not great but i will say this alan weather is football's great trump card there's a reason why dome teams including in the nfl struggle when they have to go play in the weather it is not the same game it's a little bit unfair i think to this washington state team that they go down like this because in reality that system should be in in a southern state where they don't deal with that kind of crap it's hard to play in that kind of weather it's the worst case scenario for them you got to deal with it you got to push through it you got to win but I feel like it's really unfortunate this team is denied a chance to play for the championship because I do think weather probably cost them that shot.
1: Well, and Washington is a bad matchup. This is four or five in a row for Peterson against Leach. And they do know what he's running, but guess what? A lot of other people know what he's running, too, and they can't stop him. So, yeah, the weather was not good for them. It was a bad matchup. So, yeah, a sucky result for them.
2: Auburn in this game for a while. Yeah, I don't know what Chris Musgrove was doing. Probably celebrating for a second, but knowing inevitably the death machine that is Alabama would roll on
1: fifty-two twenty-one. Bama is continues to be on another level. This Auburn team, you know, it was a rivalry game. They they put up a fight, but the whole time you felt like Auburn was kind of sneakily hanging around, and by that means not like they weren't aware of it, but that they were doing some interesting things to stick around and that wasn't going to last and it didn't.
2: South Carolina 35, Clemson 56. This was
1: close too and then Clemson basically eviscerated them. Okay, if you look at Clemson in some bigger games, they've against weirdly few SEC opponents. South Carolina and Texas A&M have both put up a ton of points against them. That defense is not what we want it to be on the back end. I don't know how they're going to fare in the playoff against a team that can really throw against them. It is time to press the panic button if you're a
2: Clemson fan. It's time. Okay. The ACC is an absolute train wreck this season. A train wreck that is unlike any other conference's train wreck. That is a horrible, horrible conference. I mean, quick, name two good teams in the ACC. Can't. You can't. And you've got to question whether Clemson's any good. AM could have beaten them. a a nice team. They're not great. South Carolina is incredibly flawed. They're missing every possible defender they could, as we chronicled on this show. And they were in the red zone, inside the five-yard line, Allen, two different times early in this game. Do the math there. They could have been a one-score game in this game, on the road, in Clemson, in a game that means everything to Clemson. Again, defense has got four guys, four guys on the line that people think are going to play in the NFL, if I'm a Clemson fan, I am very worried about who I'm going to play in the playoff. They do
1: have a chance to fix it a little bit with these bowl practices. A little bit of time. I don't know if they have enough time, but they're in trouble right now. It's a
2: concern. However, I will say this. As I was watching the Clemson game, I thought to myself, remember when Clemsoning was a thing? I do. I and that's it. like so not a thing anymore. No, so they've really gotten rid of that. They have. But they're still good. But I think they have got to look themselves in the mirror and be a little bit worried about what they may face in the playoff. LSU 72 a&M 74. I watched almost every single one of these overtimes, and the reason I missed a couple of them is I'm watching the game with my uncle in Atlanta, and I watched the pick happen, and we see the interception, the Gatorade bath, Fred Orgeron. Same. We wait five, six seconds, turn the channel to watch the Notre Dame-USC game. Yes. I am <laughs> I am seven or eight more minutes into the USC game, and on the bottom line, I all of a sudden see overtime, AM versus LSU, and I think to myself, that. That can't be right. Some stack guy's playing a joke on me. And I flip over, and lo and behold, we're in the overtime period. And I said, what in the world happened? Alan, have you seen anything as crazy as the ending of regular? I mean, Kellen Mond's knee must have hit the ground for like a nanosecond when he picked that ball up. It was insane. If you have not seen the play, do yourself a favor and look at the end of regulation, and then the rest
1: of the time they got another second back on the clock. The whole thing was—it was almost nuts. like
2: it was like contrived. It, it's hard to yeah. understand what I would feel like if I was an LSU fan. And then the the number of overtimes—it it was absolute madness that all of a sudden LSU couldn't stop anybody.
1: I watched the Ole Miss Arkansas game with Matt Jones at quarterback, seven OTs. One of the other seven OT games, uh, I think, when I was in college, and this was wilder. I was. Up watching with my cousin who was staying with us and we were ready to go to bed and we couldn't because the game just kept going. I, I was like, this game is drunk. Like, <laughs> it was wild. It was so dumb and I loved it. Man, what a crazy, crazy game. And the fact they kept matching each other, whether they got the two points or they didn't. Unbelievable. Maybe it's like a top 10 craziest game of all time.
2: Oh, without a doubt. And Ed Orgeron sprinting on the sideline to call timeouts multiple <laughs> times in the overtime period was great. Ed Orgeron actually ditched the headset and basically stopped coaching, which goes to show you what LSU is like. Dave Arnada is the one that's kind of dictating what to do, what Ed should do, because he's just watching the game and he's occasionally yelling at the players. Very weird situation for them, but for LSU, truthfully, a maddening ending. They do not finish second in the SEC West and was no. right there in front of them. The emotions of having that game won putting to bed a season where they played a ton of good opponents. This season will be remembered, I think, with frustration by LSU fans. Even though it was, it was by all standards, actually really good. It was much better than people thought it would be. Really tough ending for them. Yeah,
1: not a good ending. The, the crazy thing about this is that LSU has been on both sides of a premature Gatorade bath. The Kentucky game where they, you know, this feels tragic when it's Kentucky, they douse their coach, and then LSU has that tipped ball over somebody's head running for a touchdown, and then this one. I mean, I, yeah, I, I changed the channel. The game was over. It was 26 seconds left when he made the pick. I i made it back for the first OT because I was on Twitter, but what? Crazy. Crazy, crazy. Okay, let's Notre keep going. Notre Dame, 24. USC 17. Yeah, this game was really close. I was like, Notre Dame is going to pull a classic last weekend of college football. Just boneheaded loss. But they pulled it out. This game, I mean, USC scored late. It was not quite this close. But I don't know. This this is not a good look for Notre Dame. This is a rivalry, but it's not a blood feud or anything. If I'm Notre
2: Dame, I'm pressing the panic button. Now, what's interesting, and we're going to talk about the playoffs here in a few minutes, Notre Dame will probably play Clemson. So the two teams that maybe have interesting question marks about them will play each other, which is good for both of them. Michigan 39,
1: unbelievable. Ohio State 62. Out of nowhere. I mean, I am shocked that Ohio State put up 62 points. I thought they would score way more than Michigan usually allows. I mean, Michigan has that defense that's been crushing people. I mean, Michigan was barely in this game. They had some fluky things happen to keep them in the game, or they scored twice in like six seconds. This was Michigan's year. Now, they keep having these odd moments where they're better teams come in the years where they have to play Ohio State on the road. But we left Ohio State for dead last week. I mean, they were a, a completed bunny pass away from losing to Maryland last week. And then they come back, come out and kick the crap out of Michigan. Man, that if you're a Wolverine fan, you got to be just hating it this morning. Yeah, that's
2: that's bad news. Hardball, no wins against Urban, and I suppose it's pretty funny, Alan. After the Purdue game, you asked me this next this next game for Urban. Do they have to win it? Do they win it? Are they going to? Is this the end for them? And I said, you know, I think if they win this next game, they'll they'll probably do what they always do. They'll keep winning, and yeah. and they've done it, and they've done that. But this was an emphatic. Game, emphatic win. Haskins, now the Maryland product, has broken almost all of the Big Ten records for passing. He's broken all the Ohio State records for passing. And this was, if you caught it earlier this year, we talked about the difference between Dan Mullins offense and Urban's offense. We mentioned how they were one and the same for a long time, and Urban has clearly shifted to more of the NFL style of passing offense. It was never more on display than in the Maryland game and in this game. This is a different beast. He picked apart a Michigan defense that likes to play aggressive man-to-man, which, oh, by the way, is not what happens in the NFL because that's what happens to you. Quarterbacks will kill you if you're going to line up man-to-man the whole game, and they killed Michigan. Interesting stuff out of Urban. This game confirms to me that he, I think he has forever left the run option offense we saw at Florida and moved far more towards what you're seeing in the NFL. So good for Urban for making that adjustment. It's clearly working for him. The defense is gone. Maybe they don't need it, I don't know. But it's amazing that Ohio State went from no way they could make the playoff to I think they're the favorite to make the playoff.
1: Really crazy. I mean, how much credit do you think, we'll never know this, but how much credit does Ryan Day deserve? I mean, I think Urban's offensive coordinator like, tells a lot about the story of the season. If he has a good one, it goes well. If he's employing Steve Adazio, it does not go well. If he has Tom Herman, it goes well. When Tom Herman leaves, it does not go well. So as long as, I mean, Ryan Day's probably not going to be there. We'll see what they look like next year if Urban's there and Ryan Day is not. Okay, let's look at the rest of the SEC. Mississippi State, 35, Ole Miss, 3. Jordan Tiamu, stellar game maybe. I didn't watch any of this.
2: Struggled like everyone else does against Mississippi State. Mississippi yeah. State. And Tiamu, If for all we talk about is ceiling. <laughs> keep an eye on him. He's phenomenal, he I, is. Am, I promise. But you can only do so much when your team is, is woefully undermanned. Joe Moorhead, though. Allen, my guy. Your guy. I'm biased because I love the guy. I'm glad we don't
1: have to play him again.
2: But I got to tell you right now, he's showing signs of what great coaches do. This team drastically improved as the season went on. By the way, you saw that with Scott Frost. You saw that with Chip Kelly, almost beating Stanford. That's the mark of a coach. We talked about it under McIlwain. You know what I don't see? Improvement. We've talked about it under Mullen. We saw Improvement. Moorhead's team improved significantly. They are a force to be reckoned with right now. They can't beat the elite teams because they don't have the offense yet. But keep an eye on them. I think I think it's very possible he takes Mississippi State to a different level.
1: Well, they might take a step back next year. Oh, they will take a step back defensively. Next year,
2: no doubt. That defense is phenomenal. And unfortunately for them, they did not meet expectations this season. Yeah. I think they would have done better under Mullen. That team was built for Mullen. But keep an eye on Moorhead. I think there's potential there.
1: Yeah, I think he can get them to this level maybe playing better offense and and worse defense, some kind of combo. The thing that does suck for Mississippi State fans is yeah, if Mullen is there one more year, they, well, with Bama there, I don't know that you're ever going to win, but they would have had an incredible season, I think. Just bad timing for them, and that's a program that needs good timing. So I think you'll see that Mississippi State be a really quality program, but they might have missed their peak, peak window. Arkansas 0, Missouri 38. Absolute bloodbath there. I don't know. Chad
2: Morris is maybe the most confusing coach in the SEC right now. It it makes no sense. And Missouri caps what is probably a frustrating season for them. They lost a couple, three or four games by just a point or two. This could have been a really great season for them.
1: Georgia Tech 21, UGA 45. UGA just bludgeons them. This is
2: the best game Georgia's played all season. They're peaking at the right time. I think it's a large reason why the spread for Alabama this weekend is what it is
1: very interesting ut 13 vandy 38 Uh, vandy just out of nowhere with a haymaker against the volunteers
2: so we didn't read this during the tennessee week but i stumbled across an incredible stat where vandy owns tennessee do yourself a favor and google the past 10 to 12 years of that history vandy has been beating them like a drum times are tough at tennessee just when we kind of thought pruitt or i thought pruitt maybe turning a little corner there and Showing some life. He, he gets, turned a corner got hit by a bug. He gets hammered two weeks in a row. Really disappointing campaign again for Tennessee. I don't know where you go if you're the Vols. Maybe you hire Phil Fulmer again. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, really. You're you can't. Just, you're not you not going to fire. No, Prue you're not, obviously you're but not. But I just feel like you're just you're just hopeless at this point in time. You're oh, just man. so far away from being good when Vandy beats you
1: 38-13. No changes from Tennessee. Just Pruitt and his staff. Just keep things going. <laughs> uh, or I can hope. Kentucky, 56 Louisville a dumpster fire that's been extinguished and then reflamed again. I don't know, only scoring 10 points. Here. Will Jeff Brom take this job? I don't know. He's the the classic Purdue is where I want to be. Maybe it's true, and I could believe it from him actually. Um But man, that that's a, it's gonna be a fascinating coaching offseason. It always is. Where does somebody like Cliff Kingsbury land who scoops him up? And because if you're wondering like how good is he? Everybody's going to after him because guess who's the quarterback he recruited and developed? Pat Mahomes. And so he's going to get employed somewhere really quickly.
2: I think his salary, Allen, may, may come close to a million and a half. He might become the highest paid college assistant ever. We'll see. I think it's possible. He's that good at what he does. He's he's not, proven not to be a good head coach, but he's a phenomenal. Well, Texas Tech has a higher
1: degree of difficulty. He's
2: maybe the best offensive coordinator slash mind in the country and... The big programs are going to line up to pay that guy.
1: Okay, hopefully he goes somewhere far away from us. Okay, James, that's the end of last week. Let's take let's stop and let's take a look at a season in a whole. We don't have an opponent next week. We're not headed into the SEC Championship game this year to get bludgeoned by Alabama. I normally have to cover that. So let's take stock of the season. How do we feel about it overall? You know... Was it good? Was it a success? Who who starred? How do we do on our predictions? James, I'm going to ask you something about making Florida football fun again. Something Scott Strickland said that was the goal, to make Florida football fun again. Has Dan Mullen done that, or is it too soon to tell?
2: Too soon to tell. Now, crushing your rival on Saturday was therapeutic. It felt great. This season... As a whole, has felt great. It's awesome to be at nine wins. It's great to be fakely in the top ten ish, because <laughs> we're not really a top ten team. But I'm going to take sure, that. Sure, whatever. But it feels great to be a consistent football team that's going to put out a predictable product. That is not easy to do in college football, and we've done that. Is that fun? No, I don't think so. Not not yet. Not, not how Strickland was talking about it. Let's let's get this definition correct. Fun, again, is not winning football games. Fun, again, is what we experienced with Steve Spurrier, with Rex Grossman in the Swamp, with Tim Tebow and Urban and Percy Harvin, with even Will Greer for the limited action. That was fun. Are we there yet? No, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we've had that kind of fun watching Florida play. Did we take a step towards that? Absolutely. Too soon to tell, though, to see if the identity of this program is going to reach that kind of level. Because to me, Allen... Fun is a style that we have to reach, not necessarily a win-loss record.
1: Right. So I would say Florida football is stable again. It's good again. Fun again, I I don't know. I, I think you can tell most, well, at least the students, don't think it's fun again. They, they're not showing up. Fun again, like you said, is offense. So Florida football is offense so the fact that we're not lighting people up in a way that's i don't know dramatic i guess is maybe the best word i can use i still think there's still there's some stuff left to do and it's not going to be solved until we have the right quarterback for the system we're still fighting against ourselves somewhat by playing felipe i don't even know if that's emory jones i don't know if it's jalen jones who's coming in next year but until we get that offense really humming, where we're gashing people, we're throwing the ball well, that's when people say Florida football is fun again. Beating FSU goes a long way towards that. I tell you what, if we had lost this game, I would have certainly said no, this is not fun. But offensively, Florida's gonna have to be top-notch for this for me to say that.
2: Let's revisit the over-under.
1: Well, real quick, before we before we get to that, let me ask you this. Question about season success. Let me move this question up. Now, I think obviously we would say this season was a success. Like unqualified. If you're just asking me yes or no, Alan, is this season successful for Florida? Very clearly. But let me unpack, let me expand that word of successful. Was this like a rousing success? This was quite an achievement considering where we were. Is this just a very nice achievement or in your mind only adequate?
2: This is in between nice and rousing, but much closer to nice. Okay. Nothing about this season was rousing. This was what we expected. And we've said this a lot. I've said this at least five or six times this year. And I think it's funny because, again, I think some people listen to the show and think, "Yeah, James especially, Alan." sometimes, they're hard on the program. Uh, we know we're looking at it through what's best for the program lens. But we did actually more or less predict something very similar to this. The only reason that I didn't have our record in 9-3 and is I thought Florida State would be better than they were. Otherwise, it would have been almost exactly what I expected with a win here and a loss here. We expected, largely, Dan Mullen to do very well with this roster. We expected him to be a great resource manager. What I will say is I did not expect Dan Mullen to be such a good program manager, to be such a good ambassador for the Gators, to be a much more entertaining and personable figure. And that's why, for me, it's not just nice, it's nice plus is there were some nice bonuses and surprises there that I really like. And therefore, not rousing. Definitely better than adequate. And I think better than nice.
1: Nice plus. I like that. Agreed for the most part there. I think where we're coming from, we needed a breath of fresh air. We needed some things to go well. And then we had the adversity early on with Kentucky. I think we, then we began to build something, and that was fun. I felt like we were really building something for the first time, not just either hanging on to something in the Muschamp era or kind of treading water in the McElwain era. felt like we were moving forward, and that, that hasn't been felt like the case really since Will Greer got suspended. felt like we've just been treading water or declining in, during the Muschamp era, and it was all kind of mirage This doesn't feel like a mirage. This feels like a pasting together of things – that don't really go together, to make some, to have some success this year, but I do feel like we're building towards something in the future. So, successful season, yeah, nice. Plus, I, I'll I'll go with that. That that's a good one, James. Okay, we we made some predictions in the first episode. Um, we were right on some, we were wrong on some other. Let let's talk about a couple of those. Let's
2: walk through them. We'll start with twenty five points a game, over or under. Last year we were twenty four. Both you and I, Alan, said over. Where do we stand today? 29.8. Good for about 51st in college football. The defense definitely helped with that on several occasions. But either way, we were right on that one. We did expect an improvement in offense. Dan Mullen did significantly improve the ability for this team to score. We have not been around that number in quite some time. So we're both one for one.
1: Yeah, that, that was funny. We went back and listened to this. And we went over on the previous number. Last year, we said, oh, we're at 22 a game. Of course, we'll go under, go over. And we went under because we said it's impossible for us to go under. And we did it. So an improvement was very nice. Yeah,
2: very, very nice. Passing yards. We set this number, Alan, at 2,500. I felt like that was too high. So I took the under. You took the over. Now, we can't recall whether this was one quarterback or this was the team. The team did it. The team has twenty six sixty, so that's exactly what you said. Slightly over. Felipe Franks has twenty two seventy five or so. So I don't know what to do on this one other than to say that both of us had the right idea.
1: I th- yeah, I think m- if I had to say if I had to make a ruling, I think you're right because really what you're thinking about is your quarterback throwing this. I mean, the fact that you get a couple of Emory Jones passes or. I guess he did play a significant amount of time versus Ida. But really, you think about how successful is the passing offense? Does the quarterback go over 2,500? He technically didn't, although we did as a team, I guess it's helpful, you know, to go over it. You know, if you're like Alabama, you're probably adding in Jalen Hurts' stats because Tua is only playing for a half. But really, it's mostly reflective of the fact that Felipe didn't throw for that many yards.
2: And that, that seems to be right because the yardage awards that we're going to go through are individual. However, either way, those are the numbers. So we did not get it. If you're looking at an individual player, we did get it as a team. I said we'd be around 2,000. We're there individually. You said a shade over 2,500. We're there collectively. So either way, it kind good of job by both of us, or bad job. By kind of both indicates that game. we had the good feeling that our passing game was not going to be super stellar. Number of quarterbacks who are going to play four quarters of total playing time. This segment was hilarious. Both you and I thought that there would be injuries probably, that Emory Jones would play more, that Trask would definitely get in. We weren't necessarily wrong on this one. We both went over thinking that more than two-and-a-half quarterbacks was the number two-and-a-half QBs would play. We thought all three of them would play a lot. All three of them did play. Trask probably would have been the starter there for a little bit. It would have gotten very close, but in this case, we were both wrong.
1: Yeah, this is funny. Listening back to this again, we were like, Basically, put forth the theory that we've been operating with all along that Emory Jones was going to play a lot, even if he didn't start in the kind of Tim Tebow-esque role. We were wrong about how Dan viewed that role, or whether Emory was going to be ready. And but thought that Trask might get in there either to injury or not playing well. And he, you know, I don't know if he would have started that uh, the South Carolina week, but it was close. So we were wrong on that, and that's maybe a good thing for the overall health of the team, but maybe not for the overall excitement of the team. Eight sacks was the number we sent the
2: over-under on. I said under. The previous year I had said over, and we almost got no sacks. You, as you said, the eternal optimist, thought we could get more than eight, and you even announced it could be Polite or Jefferson. And right now, Polite has 11 sacks, which is just two off of Alex Brown's Florida team record. So good call by you, Alan.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Polite just a huge, huge year. I mean, 11, 11 sacks. That's, that doesn't sound like a lot when if, if you mostly watch the NFL because um, guys routinely will get to double digits like that. But that's quite an accomplishment by him.
2: And we asked who would be the player that could most be an All-American. And we identified the defensive line as probably the most likely place to come. Polite now has worked himself into a first-round pick in the NFL by most projections. So a phenomenal year. By him. Total defense, 30 or better. Both of us thought that we'd be better than 30th. It turns out we're very close, 35th in total defense, if you want to look at the metric there. I'm using total defense by merging three categories. Uh, Very, very close by all metrics, but not below 30. Something was said as a caveat. We mentioned if we weren't injured. I think you can make the case here, Alan, that if Marco Wilson stayed healthy, This team probably does get below 30. I think so. I think so too. Total defense aside, we switched to the, maybe my favorite metrics here. The two offensive ones that one Tyler Rummery loves to talk about every year. First, a thousand yard rusher to which Tyler Rummery, our first and original podcast fan, seems to think will be so easy to hit every single year. is in fact not easy to hit. I took the under, you took the under. We both mentioned there'd be too many guys getting carries which is, in fact, exactly what happened.
1: Even yeah. less guys getting carries than we thought there than would we be. we thought.
2: But either way, P. Ryan, 750. Scarlet 717. Pierce, 425. But good
1: seasons by P. Ryan and Scarlet. The the 700 number is a decent number for a committee back. Those guys had great seasons, even if they didn't hit that kind of, I don't know, arbitrary no- note of 1,000. They still had quite successful years.
2: Yeah, solid solid rushing as a team, especially compared to the more recent years we've had. So if you're saying, OK, yeah, see, they could have had 1,000, a little bit of fool's gold because that's going to require you to give one guy the ball a lot. And that's kind of why both of us went under. We started <laughs> with 750 yards receiving, to which I laughed at that number and said mm-hmm. that that can't be even possible. It feels like a million yards. We both took the under on that one and instead bumped it down to 500. I then took the over, which is funny when I said 750 felt like a million yards. Yeah, and I you took the over. over thinking we would just crawl over it. You took the under. Again we were close. We set a good line. Van Jefferson finishes with 439 yards. Yeah, so and this very is a, close.
1: yeah, and it feels like he could have gotten there pretty easily, you know, just one more catch or so. But we thought the limitation would be the quarterback and it obviously was. And a different guy throwing a Van Jefferson, he would have he probably would have gone over 750. He had the talent, the matchups, uh the other people around him to do it, but just the limitation by the quarterback, of course. Okay. Those are the over-unders. We did okay. We were close. Some ups, some downs. Let's give out some awards, James. These are our season-ending awards. We should give them a name sometime. First year that we're doing this. All right, let's start with freshman of the year. This is going to be offense or defense. Who's the freshman that stood out to you the most?
2: I'm going to go with Trey Dean. Although he's not the one that stood out the most to me, I think he might have been the most important. I think that if we didn't have Trey Dean, we knew who was coming in, which was C.J. McWilliams. <laughs> and I don't I don't think we're sitting at nine wins. So I'm going to maybe look at the most valuable freshman versus the most impressive freshman.
1: Yeah, who would you say the most impressive freshman? I freshmen? think
2: that's Damian Pierce. Agreed. I think that's, that's a simple one. But I think that if you look at most important, we didn't need Pierce. Pierce could have not played a single snap and it wouldn't have mattered. I don't know where we are without Trey Dean. I mean, he really became a very solid contributor, and that was huge.
1: Yes, I agree. He's For me, this is an obvious, obvious choice. Now, Pierce is very much the flashier player. And I will give a—actually, you know what? More than an honorable mention, he should be a nominee for this. Evan McPherson coming in and just solidifying the kicking job. That could have been a real hole for this team and could have cost them a win or two. But, yeah— Trey Dean coming in, playing a really tough spot. That It's hard to come in and play, uh, be a starter as a true freshman at corner. Okay, let's move to offensive and defensive player of the year. Let's start with offense. Uh, James, who's your offensive player of the year?
2: This one is, is tricky because there's a couple of people that I want to give this to. And there's not an obvious candidate to me.
1: Yeah, it's intriguing as a bunch because of guys.
2: There's a lot of guys that contributed and did well. And I'm going to try to use the same lens that I used for for trading. Who did we most need to play well in order for this to go well? And when I look at it that way, I'm going to say that Tony, Kadarius Tony was our most unique and versatile tool on offense. Although he probably didn't contribute as much as he maybe even could have he was a guy that I think if we lost him would have changed a lot of little things we did hmm. to confuse defenses, to add wrinkles in, to steal big touchdowns. So I'm going to say that Tony, even though, again, production was pretty light, I think his impact on the offense was
1: significant to the point to where I'm going to give him that award. That's really interesting. I, I thought about Tony. I, I just looked at – I think he actually should be the offensive player of the year, but I don't think he was – because we didn't use him like we should have. So I'm going to say Van Jefferson. He's a guy who came in as a as a transfer, you know, eligible immediately, brought like some real, I think leadership and size and technique to our wide receiver core who's filled with just a bunch of guys really who hadn't played a lot, who hadn't produced a lot. And he's a guy who had. Um and he came in and and was everything we wanted him to be. And again, could have had better stats if we could have gotten the ball, but We threw to him in big spots almost every time. If we needed a third down catch or we needed to make some yardage on a slant, he was going to come up with the ball. I was almost never disappointed by him. Either the routes he ran or coming up with the ball, blocking, whatever it was. So my Offensive Player of the Year. Okay, Defensive Player of the Year. I'll go first on this one. Uh, I think it has to be polite. Uh, 11 sacks, getting a ton of attention along the defensive line where you have to account for him. His speed off the edge is unreal. He goes from a guy who's not even supposed to start to being a potential all-SEC type player, first-round pick. Fantastic year by him. I, I, I think it has to be him.
2: It's definitely him. If you go with maybe the most important player, you can make an argument for David Reese. Yeah. Because you could say that we probably beat Kentucky with David Reese. I think that's a fair assumption to look at how awful we were at stopping the run when Reese was not in the game and how good we were relatively speaking if you look at like wins above replacement if you will mm-hmm. uh, with him in there but there's no doubt that polite is the player of the year I mean he's he's the flashiest the shiniest I think closely followed by David Reese and then Chauncey Gardner uh, his impact at nickel this year was incredible that was a that's a big deal he could almost single-handedly erase the middle of the field uh, which is important when you can't get defensive tackle pressure and you've struggled to cover with your linebackers. But Polite has been a one-man wrecking crew. He has single-handedly beaten teams with his ability to pass rush. Uh, I think I think that's an obvious candidate.
1: There. It's nice that we have several candidates here. And I, we haven't even mentioned C.J. Henderson, who had a phenomenal year. He's, it's kind of quiet because teams don't really throw at him that much, but had an excellent year. A guy who's essential for our success as well. Um, yeah, again, not that you almost have to pick Polite. But there's a lot of guys who had really nice years on that defense. And then there's guys who had really bad years. So we had this very uneven mix of players. If we had basically replacement-level players at a lot of the spots, this would have been maybe an elite defense with some of the stars that we have out there. Okay, James, let's talk about play of the year. What was the biggest moment for you?
2: This one does not have an obvious spot for me. I think back on the air and think, ooh, this is this is the player, this is the scenario, this is whatever. The most important thing to me this year was was beating Florida State. That was a big deal. And, and therefore, the second most important thing to me is watching deep passes get thrown. That catch that Van Jefferson had in that Florida State game hmm. was meaningless in the grand scheme of things. It wasn't like, oh, man, it was a touchdown, or it really wasn't even anything of consequence. But just a corner route thrown well, a full-out diving catch that was NFL-worthy and then some, against your rival Florida State. There was some level of like little therapy there for me where I was like, oh, that felt nice. That was nice. It's inconsequential; It doesn't matter. We're going to crush them. It's not even an important play. But I think the bigger moment was that here we are making the most of our roster, uh, well-built by Dan Mullen, taking advantage of of Van Jefferson's skill set, which we didn't really get too often and having it happen against Florida State. There was like this little moment of like, maybe maybe we'll get here someday. Or in the future I'll see more of these catches. So that's that's kind of a weak sauce biggest moment because the moment itself is not super memorable. But play
1: of the year. But it's,
2: it's a play of the year and that catch on its own was phenomenal. Put that catch in a game that matters and it's incredible. Uh really difficult catch. There are bigger plays that are more impactful, but I'm gonna go with that one for me personally.
1: It's funny that I'm the two plays that I'm considering are made by two safeties and players that you wouldn't you would not expect to be in this category honorable mention here to Donovan Steiner blowing up Nick Nick Fitzgerald on that sack but I have to say the play of the year for me is Brad Stewart's interception against LSU to pretty much seal it and the swamp going nuts that's I think that's what will stick with me emotionally and resonate with me there's not an indelible play like a bomb to um, Tiger Cleveland against Tennessee the year before, or the goal line stand against LSU or something like that. But that play was a really cool moment in the Swamp. And then I'll go ahead and transition to best win. I, I don't know if there's going to be any other thing. We can talk about FSU, but I'm going to say LSU. At the Swamp, there was a pretty weak home schedule. I've been away all last year. So for me, our best win, both what it accomplished for us as a team and as, you know, kind of the heights of – of winning there was against LSU. Great moment for the program. I think a big win in front of an awesome crowd, in front of recruits against the top 10 team. That's for me. Do you want to agree with that? Do you want to go another direction?
2: No, you, you did a good job there. Stealing my thunder. See, I I, I was going to save the Brad Edwards play thinking you were definitely going Steiner for the, the play of the year because that was <laughs> the most memorable jump out of your seat, get pumped up play. And I'm like, oh, I'll just sneak in the Brad Stewart play for my best win with LSU and take like what I thought was the highest moment I had in the swamp. But you got them both. Well, John, good job. You're good at what you do. Uh, yeah, the LSU game is the one that's going to stick with me. When I think of this year, I'm going to think of beating Florida State, even though they were bad. And then having a good win against a surprisingly good LSU team in a gritty game that was very fun to be in the swamp again for, that to me is, is clearly our, our best win of the season. Enjoyable, fantastic play at the end, a, a moment that I think we may remember, Alan, as being a, a potential turning point for the Dan Mullen era, a point where we thought, okay, we can do this. We can, we can beat a team that's highly ranked, even if they're not really that good. We can compete again. We can play sound football again.
1: Could be that kind of moment. All right, MVP of the season. Do you want to go first?
2: I will go first, and we've covered again almost all the candidates here. I think if you've listened to what we just said, the obvious MVP here is is polite to me. He's the obvious guy. He's got the most talent. He's the guy that's flashed the most. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name polite. Okay. I'm gonna name the most valuable player as one Dan Mullen. You can take polite off the team, keep Dan Mullen, we're probably going to win about the same amount of games. You can take Dan Mullen off the team and bring in a host of other guys and we're not there. Is this a cop-out? I don't think so. I think this illustrates what I think Dan Mullen could do as a resource manager. We have not had a guy that can manage resources well since Urban Meyer. It's been a long, long time. The season MVP award to me goes to him. If I have to pick a player, I'm going to go back to polite, but I'm going to go Dan Mullen as my season MVP.
1: That's certainly cheating, but I was going to do the same thing and cheat right in front of you. I let you go first. I I didn't think I thought I had you one on you there. We've both been cheating each other. I'm going to go in an interesting direction here. And I'm going to say the MVP is David Reese. It's hard on offense to pick out anybody who's so essential. And even like you could have picked an offensive lineman in some years who like solidified or who was an all MVP or all conference type of player. I thought about Chauncey thought about CJ Henderson polite, but it, if you just take one player off and one player on and it's David Reese and you you mentioned this against Kentucky really solidifies what we're doing as a whole now he's hadn't had a perfect year by any means but when he's not on the field I am like oh man bad things are about to happen every time he's not in there you're like why isn't David Reese in there where is he where is he now you saw when we lost CJ Henderson for a play that that was very bad but It's weird to say this in an alternate world where C.J. Henderson gets hurt and Marco Wilson is the guy who's healthy. I think we have roughly the same results. If David Reese never makes it back, I think we will lose maybe two or three more games. And that's a stunning stat. So, or theory, I guess, not a statistic. I guess I can make up my own stats there. So he's my MVP. The real MVP is, of course, Dan Mullen, though. But you could probably say that for a lot of college teams that the coach is the MVP because he's the most important figure by far.
2: Yeah, you could. And timely wise, I think we're signifying what this season means. When I remember it, I'll remember that. And, and I think like you mentioned, I almost picked David Reese as my defensive player of the year for that reason. And MVP awards typically go to the flashy stat guys. So it's, it's funny how you look at my own logic. I'm, I'm renaming all of these to like, Oh no, this is, this is the guy I think is the most valuable. And then when I get to the most valuable player award, I don't go to the guy that I was naming as the most valuable player as a player. I say, oh, it's polite, but I go with Dan. But funny how even this illustrates like kind of how you're you're sort of like brainwashed and MVPs. Well, that's a what the offensive and defensive right? player,
1: you know, just who's the most highest performing. These are like if you in baseball, you know, if you were kind of have the pitcher of the year or the, you know, you had an offensive production player of the year and you had also had a stat. I guess the NFL does this. They do MVP and they do offensive defense player of the year. Is that true?
2: They do, yeah, but they're largely, I feel like, not always the most valuable player. No. like I think, like you said, if you look at this team, Dan Mullen for sure is the most valuable person, most valuable player, if you're talking about adding to your win total, is is probably David Reese. And
1: normally it's a quarterback.
2: Almost always a quarterback. Because because they do make the most
1: difference, and they're the linchpin of everything we're doing. But it would be crazy to say Felipe was our MVP.
2: Oh, yeah, no. And I think that you could probably still have won games – with Trask healthy, for sure. I don't think that's a push at all. And maybe even with Emery. But Reese, the defense couldn't stop the run. And we need to stop the run against several teams. So I think that's a that's a sound point there. So the Gators are not playing this weekend, Allen. But there are a host of other championship games. Actually, the large majority of these are not very compelling. There are a couple good ones. Utah against Washington. Washington only a five-point favorite in this game.
1: I'm going to take Utah. I think that they're prime for this. They've been playing really well in the last half of the year. I'm going to pick a little upset here.
2: I like picking that upset because they are hungry for this. Washington, very disappointing season. Not playing as much uh, for this championship as Utah is, I think. Washington season was to beat Washington State. Uh, either way, I, I, Chris Peterson, I think, has a great track record here. But I, I, like, I like your upset of Utah here. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to equal you there. Thank you. Texas against Oklahoma, a rematch. Texas probably a little lucky to win the first one, although they've they barely beat Kansas, a team with a fired coach last week. Not a good look. Oklahoma seven and a half point favorites here.
1: You know, I would have liked Texas coming in, you know, kind of having a little bit of a break. Oklahoma's played all these like kind of close games, but Texas didn't impress me last week. This is going to be a shootout again, and so I'm tempted to take Texas because of the points, but I'll, I'll take Oklahoma here.
2: So what happens last week, as we learned, does not translate in college football to what will happen this week. The first matchup was zany. Oklahoma's defense is, is worse than Texas's defense. And for that reason, I want to go Texas. Something about this Oklahoma team, though, seems to me they're going to get this done. They've, they've kind of been escaping here. They've been putting up a lot of points. I'm going to pick Oklahoma. Memphis, smelling perhaps blood in the water for Mackenzie Milton being out. Playing UCF for the championship
1: here. UCF only favored by three and a half. Yeah, I'm going to take Memphis in this game. They were they played UCF really close last time. Feels like UCF might be a little deflated. They're not going to get in the playoff. Um, I don't know. Although it wouldn't surprise me if UCF rolled them again or rolled somebody again. But I'll take Memphis here.
2: I think this is the game Memphis wins. They were close last year. They were super close in the middle of this season. I think they're going to come in with a lot of confidence. A lot of confidence here facing a starter that has not started any games for UCF. Alabama, minus 13. We alluded to it earlier in the show. Only minus 13 against Georgia in the SEC Championship game.
1: I got to go Bama here. That number is too small to pick UGA. Bama's been rolling everybody. is going to keep it close, but I think 13 points close. Yeah,
2: back up the truck on this one. Bring out stacks on stacks on stacks. Alabama has been... Nick Saban has been waiting for this game. He's frustrated with last year. He almost lost. This Georgia team is not the same. They do have the athletes, though. Almost. They have them on the sideline. A lot of them still are not playing in the game for Georgia. And that's my main problem in this game. I like Bama. I think this is going to be a statement game. Stacks on stacks on stacks. Lock of the week. Clemson... 26 and a half point favorites. I just laugh. in the ACC championship game against Pitt, who just got beat like a drum by Miami last week.
1: Yeah. This would be the most Clemson in Clemson ever if they were to lose to Pitt. The number is super big. I, I wouldn't touch this either way, but I, I, if I have to choose here, I'll, I'll take Clemson.
2: Yeah, I'm taking Clemson this one. I think they're going to obliterate Pitt. I don't think they're going to call the dogs off either. Northwestern, very feisty team. Very feisty team while you're in the Big Ten. Going up against Ohio State, Ohio State favored by fourteen.
1: I I don't know what Ohio State team shows up. Northwestern is spunky. They're hard nosed. They've recovered from like a really tough start to these this year to be a pretty decent team. I think they keep this kind of close, so I'll take Northwestern to this cover, not feels really to win.
2: Like a game, Alan, that Northwestern could win.
1: I agree they could And be. I
2: only say that because Ohio State season has been weird. It's been weird. To say the least. It's not normal. It's been a little odd. But I think there is a tremendous amount of Urban Meyer momentum behind Ohio State. This reminds me of when he goes in the campaign on the talk shows, put me in the playoff, put me in the show. And when he does that, they seem to win. So I'm going to think Ohio State wins this game convincingly. Like by scoring 75 points. No, I think they'll get 50 maybe in this game. But their offense is an absolute juggernaut right now. I don't see that getting slowed down by Northwestern. Okay, now it's time to close the show with one of my favorite topics, the playoffs. First, we'll pick who I think our teams are going to be. We're going to save our playoff picks till we actually see the real brackets as far as who beats who and who wins. And then we're going to have a little discussion on whether we should have four teams or eight teams. But first, Alan... Give me your four playoff
1: teams. Well, I think Notre Dame and Alabama are in. Alabama's in win or lose, I think. I think Clemson is also in if they win, of course. And the last team, I'm going to take Oklahoma. I think they've done enough against this schedule, especially with another win against Texas. I think that that edges them out against Ohio State.
2: I'm going to take three of your four, which everyone else is taking. Clemson, Alabama, Notre Dame. But I'm going to take Ohio State over Oklahoma. I think this is this is more impressive by Ohio State season wise than what Oklahoma did. Oklahoma's loss is better against a, a a ranked Texas team in a rivalry game than Ohio State's horrible loss, dismantling by Purdue, who's fine. They're good, but that that's a bad loss. I just think that what Ohio State did in that Michigan game always gets overvalued every single year. It just does. It's it's how it goes, it's what happens. I think the same will be true this year if they can win this weekend.
1: Let me ask you a question. Let's say UGA wins. So I'm assuming Bama's in no matter what. Notre Dame's in, Clemson's in. Do you do you pick UGA over Ohio State?
2: I Oklahoma? do, yes. But this is this is why we're going to lead into this other discussion. And I'm glad you so segued perfectly into that because why are we making this decision, Alan, this should be an eight team playoff because let me paint this picture. Ultimately you are asking the voter in that scenario, let's say some committee of people that are not playing football on the field. Some people in a room, which I strongly dislike that kind of centralized planning to pick those teams. And what you're asking them to do is to pick a fourth team between Oklahoma and Ohio State, UGA, and then you could add some others to the list, right? To pick that team. Now, keep in mind what kind of hairs we're splitting here, Alan. Oklahoma narrowly escapes the win against West Virginia. Ohio State narrowly escapes the win against Maryland. I mean, how are you comparing these two teams? How are you deciding that? Why not go eight teams, put UCF in there, let Cinderella exist, and make the debate between eight and nine, which really is not a debate. If we look at the top eight teams right now, After six, generally, each year, it kind of falls off a cliff. But let me give you a double-double whammy. You get rid of these conference championship games because it's not fair to me that Georgia has to play Alabama. It's not fair because Georgia is absolutely a playoff team. Georgia is probably better than Notre Dame. You could say definitely better, but I'm going to say probably better than Notre Dame. And they're also at least equal to and maybe probably better than Clemson. They're at least equal to them. But because their reward is to play in their own conference championship, they get an extra playoff game no one else has to play. I don't know. It feels a little arbitrary to me. I'm a huge proponent of eight teams. I wouldn't want to see more. I want to cut off the argument that you're going to go to sixteen. No, no, I don't want that. I think eight is where the line is because typically, Allen, you have five or six teams, I think, that are all worthy. I don't think it will be right if both Oklahoma and Ohio State went out that one of them is not going to have a chance to go. You tell me how you pick. Between Ohio State and Oklahoma, just tell me how you responsibly pick between those two as to which one is better without letting them play. It's not fair.
1: <laughs> I don't know how you responsibly pick, but I like picking. I like four. I was nervous about the playoff because I'm. I love college football so much. I don't want to see it change. This is, I guess, my conservative nature here. I think an eighteen playoff could work, but it's still you're still asking people to choose. Ultimately, you're going to get down to those wild card teams. So you're still using subjective methods. There is no objective way. There's like a 100-something teams to pick from, right? I like the chaos. I like the debate. I like the controversy, the uncertainty, the manic insanity that incites in fan bases when it gets down to these choices. Now, okay, I'm sitting in a privileged position here as a full fan. If we ever win the SEC we will be in the playoff, right? For the foreseeable future, that statement will be true. So I'm not having to be in the position of Oklahoma or Ohio State. So even a one-loss Florida team as SEC champion will be in the playoff. So it doesn't bother me because I'm, I'm sitting from this protected position, but I, I like the insanity of it. I like the chaos of it. So I'm, I am I'm prefer sticking with four, four. I don't want to go to eight. I don't want to see the regular season change any more than it already has been. I'm disappointed. A man of your
2: of your level of justice (laughs) and fairness (laughs) would not think that it's it's unfair to have a committee of people decide between Oklahoma and Ohio State. We live in a country where, although it's fading, we largely still get to determine our own fate. But they're still going to decide our choices. And you, sir. Are providing socialism to the masses here <laughs> by saying, "I, Alan Williams, will put my hat on and I will choose the winner between Oklahoma and Ohio State." And I say, "Not so fast, my friend. Let them decide it on the field." I'm just a huge proponent of they're gonna deciding choose it on the field.
1: They're gonna choose at at seven and eight for the seventh eight and, eight and teams.
2: nine, which is certainly a lesser evil. Okay, it's maybe not so, but
1: you're you're acting like one is capitalism and one is socialism. It's just A slightly different Oh, no, no.
2: These are all forms of socialism. But you are embracing more socialism. I'm embracing less socialism. But more importantly, I'm trying to embrace fairness. I think team number nine. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every
0: light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.